welcome to Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for the 2019 January issue of NCP is critical care as it relates to nutrition support. So joining me today is the first author of the paper, Fecal Microbiota Transplantation for the Critically Ill Patient, which is published in the January 2019 issue of NCP. Dr. Lim Ketkai is a gastroenterologist and a clinical associate professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Stanford University School of Medicine in Palo Alto, California. So thank you, Dr. Lim Ketkai, for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation, Dr. Hassey. So before we start our discussion, I'd like to ask Dr. Lim Ketkai if he has any disclosures on this topic that he'd like to share. I uh, do not have any disclosures. So let's just kind of jump right in. So in your paper, you talk about how fecal transplantation may be needed because of intestinal dysbiosis. So can you first describe what dysbiosis is and how it develops, especially in the critically ill population? Yes, certainly. You know, so our gastrointestinal tract has a rich composition of microorganisms, you know, such as bacteria, viruses, and fungi that comprise what we call the gut, quote-unquote, microbiota. Now, these microorganisms possess symbiotic functions with the human host, such as nutrient metabolism and competitive inhibition against more pathogenic strains of bacteria. So the term intestinal dysbiosis um, actually refers to a disequilibrium of what one considers the normal healthy flora. In colloquial terms, that is the good bacteria versus the bad bacteria. Now, this is generally considered a different concept from the infectious gastroenteritides that one would get from consuming, let's say, contaminated food, for instance. But in the critically ill patients, in particular, uh, they are at risk for dysbiosis uh, due to the high prevalence of medications or in particularly antibiotic use, dysmotility, such as from ischemia, shock, or immobility, and altered nutrition, systemic inflammation, and a whole host of comorbidities that accompany those patients who actually get admitted into the ICU. Specifically, can you tell us why we should even care about the microbiome in the critically ill population? So alterations in the microbiome, specifically intestinal dysbiosis, have been implicated with a host of health conditions ranging from gastrointestinal disorders, such as irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, and so forth, uh, to hepatic disorders and even psychiatric conditions. Uh, for the critically ill patients, emerging prospective data have suggested that the microbiome may influence the risk of adverse outcomes, such as extraintestinal infections, that is, you know, infections not even just in the intestinal tract, multi-organ injury, and even death. So we've been talking a little bit about this fecal transplantation, and this may be a new procedure or term to some of our listeners. So can you give our listeners a brief overview of what fecal transplantation is? Basically, what is it? How did it come about? And how is it just different than us giving probiotics to our patients orally? So fecal transplant comes with uh, several terms, one being fecal microbiota transplantation, uh, the abbreviation being FMT, or otherwise more commonly known as stool transplant. FMT involves the transfer of feces, as the name implies, from a presumably healthy donor to its recipient. And this can occur through enemas, nasogastric delivery, colonoscopies, and more recently, encapsulated stool, as some would coin the poop pills. But as a historical side note, uh, FMT is actually interestingly a 1,700-year-old technology. Back in the fourth century, a child Chinese health practitioner 
published his recipe of using fecal trans suspensions to uh, treat food poisoning and severe diarrhea. Uh, several centuries thereafter, this was actually euphemistically called uh, yellow soup to treat abdominal diseases. But as you can imagine, this is not an attractive idea and did not gain traction for centuries. In the more modern era, there was a recognition of the potential health benefits of certain bacteria, which evolved into what we now know as probiotics. And this recognition also paved the way for the introduction of fecal transplants as a potential treatment modality. In direct response to your question, unlike probiotics, where there's perhaps one or a few microbial strains introduced into the body, fecal transplant involves reconstituting an entire population of what we hope to be healthy bacteria because it was derived from a presumably healthy donor. Dr. Limketkai, can you also give us some background on your paper? You completed a comprehensive literature search and interestingly found only five case studies of critically ill patients who underwent this fecal microbiota transplant. So what were the overall results in those case studies? And secondly, why were there so few case studies available? Is it because that this procedure just isn't available a lot of our centers, or is there a concern for infection or just an overall lack of evidence? Our team performed a systematic literature search for cases of fecal transplant in ICU patients with a presentation of systemic inflammatory response, but without a recognized etiology. As you mentioned, five cases were identified. The first four ever reported came from two hospitals in China and the fifth from Austria. The common features among these patients included the persistence of high fevers, intermittent hemodynamic compromise, and high-volume diarrhea, again, without any clear etiology. The symptoms persisted for up to several weeks despite multiple broad-spectrum antibiotics, probiotics, and supportive management. Now, given the absence of an etiology and the presence of high-volume diarrhea, clinicians suspected that perhaps there was some degree of intestinal dysbiosis. This was confirmed using ribosomal RNA sequencing methods of this stool. Now, whether dysbiosis was a cause or effect is not known, but desperate times called for desperate measures. Fecal transplant was performed via the nasogastric and nasoduodenal route in the Chinese cases and by colonoscopy in the Austrian case. But remarkably, the patients defervesced as early as one day after fecal transplant. And this was after several weeks of high fevers. And the stool output dramatically improved in all patients with some improvement detected even within one to two days after the transplant and normalization of the stool output by two weeks. And any, blood pos uh, any positive blood cultures had also cleared at the time. Now, there are several reasons I believe we still have poor adoption of fecal transplant for the ICU population. As you mentioned earlier, we only have but five cases reported. One, we are still at the infant stages of applying this treatment modality for a highly atypical indication there is not yet a recognition of its potential use in the ICU. And second, FMT comprises infectious pathogens, and there is still some fear, anxiety, or even lack of clarity of its potential infectious risk, especially in those who are critically ill. Although I will admit that there are studies now shown to that fecal transplant is safe in the immunocompromised patients. And at my institution and several throughout the United States, we have performed FMT in immunocompromised patients. But again, in the highly vulnerable, critically ill patient, one would hate to be the one that performs the fecal transplant that accelerates the patient's demise. But thirdly, there are also regulatory matters to consider. So notice that the cases that were reported did not include any patients in the United States. 
in the United States, the only FDA accepted indication for fecal transplant is a third case of recurrent C. difficile infections. One could still perform fecal transplants in the non-C. difficile infected patients, but that would require jumping through several hurdles of submitting an investigational new drug application and all the administrative burden associated with that. So while fecal transplant is indeed a procedure that is performed throughout the United States and even throughout the world and has been found to be very effective in the treatment of C. difficile infections for the application in the intensive care unit that is still a very cutting or bleeding edge uh, indication for the use of this treatment modality. If you could kind of look into the future, do you think that this practice will become more widespread or what kind of evidence or research needs to be done uh, to make this be a more common practice or to come up with a decision about whether we should or shouldn't be using fecal microbiota transplantation in critically ill patients? Yes, there are but a handful of cases. Fortunately, these are just the first signals of a potential benefit of fecal transplant in this critically ill population. And the benefit was actually quite dramatic in its outcome. So as more cases are reported, as our comfort and confidence in the use of the treatment in patients increase, and as more formal research studies are performed, I believe that there will be a progressive increase in its use in the critically ill patient. To your question, there are several areas of research that need to be addressed. I mean, first and foremost is the safety consideration. As I mentioned earlier, you know, one would hate to be the person to perform the fecal transplant in the critically ill patient and lead to a negative or adverse outcome. And secondly, you know, efficacy is definitely an important uh, consideration as well. The indication, uh, that is, in whom should this fecal transplant be performed? It would not necessarily work in any ICU patient. And, you know, we saw common themes amongst the ICU patients in the five reported cases. And also, there's also consideration about modes of delivery. Although it appears that convenient nasogastric and nasoduodenal routes seem to be effective, there's still the question about would the encapsulated stool pills work or would the colonoscopic delivery be more effective and, and so forth. So these are just some areas of research that need to be addressed uh, prior to it becoming more common practice. Another thing I'd like to have you weigh in on is how as we as nutrition support practitioners utilize this knowledge in our practice? Is there something that we can 